Welcome to Legal Trailblazers, where we talk about black lawyers and their role in the ushering in of the constitutional democracy that South Africa enjoys today. In this episode, we chat to Miss Amanda Cornwell, an Australian woman who made a sojourn to South Africa and worked for the Black Lawyers Association in 1986. The first question I posed in my virtual interview with her was, how did she end up in our shores? Well, it was a bit accidental. I was supposed yes. to be going from Australia through Asia to London, but I turned left at Africa <laughs> instead. I, um, I went to the end of the Decade of Women Conference in Nairobi, in 1985 and I met some people there and I decided to keep traveling south overland in Africa. I didn't make it to London for another 20 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, what work were you doing then which, which made you to, to travel around uh, <laughs> Africa? Just... I had finished my law degree. I had worked for a member of one of our senators for a year and I decided to have a year off traveling around the world. And uh, I just followed my nose, really. I, I had a plan, but I didn't really follow it very well. It depended on who I met. And when I got to Africa, I found it fascinating. Uh, I didn't ever plan to go to South Africa. I was going to go as far as Zimbabwe and turn around. But then I met, well, I was in Zimbabwe, met some South Africans, and I traveled with them to uh, Johannesburg. And there I stayed for a couple of years. How many years did you stay uh, here? Nearly two years. And when I first arrived in Johannesburg, I started. I had worked with community legal centres in Australia uh, as a student, as a law student, and I had been a student activist. So when I arrived in Johannesburg, I went to um, some of the, to the legal resources centre and asked if they were interested in having me as a volunteer or getting involved. So I did do some work with them, interviewing, um, doing some interviews for them. I couldn't practice in South Africa as a lawyer, though, because I didn't have Afrikaans, which you needed then as a qualification, for one thing. And our legal system is different, so I would have had to do a lot of study. So, <laughs> yeah, one thing led to another. I met some people. I um, ended up going for – I saw the job in, for a job at the Black Lawyers Association advertising the Sowetan. And uh, it, the interview was very amusing. Um, I think the black lawyers who interviewed me were just scratching their heads and thinking, what is she doing here? <laughs> and <laughs> yes. they did actually ask me those questions. They said, well, what do, your, what do you think your white friends will think of you working here? And that was an interesting question, but I was a bit surprised by it. It was very direct. Um, but I my answer was I didn't come to South Africa to make white people happy, so, which was an honest answer. <laughs> and of course, at the Black Lawyers Association, the president at the time was yes, still was Mr. Godfrey Peter. person to have the privilege of working with. Yeah. Can you tell, more, tell us more Can about him? Can I tell you him? more about him? Don't you know all about him? Yeah. <laughs> Not as much as you know, definitely. I haven't met you him, haven't. Uh, by the way. No. I haven't no. met uh, Mr. He Godfrey Peach. He's an extraordinary yes. person. I'd never met anyone like him. Um, he, of course, came from a background, started out as a teacher, but 
was too much of an activist <laughs> to last as a teacher in apartheid South Africa. And um, everyone knows the story. He practiced uh, as a lawyer with um, Oliver Tambo and Nelson Mandela as, as a junior. Um, by the time I met him, uh, he was practicing family law, which, of course, in, in South Africa at the time was really very fraught because customary law wasn't recognized. Um, so there were two different law, systems of law, the, the, the one that was recognized by the government and the one that was recognized by the people. Um, but he was quite well suited. His temperament was, I'd never met someone so impressive to calm people in conflict. Uh, I had never seen that before. Uh, it was quite something to watch. This uh, legal education center was established. Were you already working at the Black Lawyers Association? No, no, I was recruited uh, after the interview um, in 1986, in about March of 1986. And the board was already established, but the, it had been operating already for some time. I couldn't tell you exactly. So I came in as a uh, research officer and legal education officer. Um, there was Godfrey and two solicitors and office staff. It was quite small. What exactly did you do there at, uh, at, the, at the Legal Education Centre of the PLA? Um, I set up the African Law Review because um, I thought when I got there, from my experience as a, as a political activist in my country, you need to if you're going to have an organisation that's advocating for something, you need to have a way of communicating it. And in those days, a magazine or a journal was was important. We didn't have radio stations and we didn't have TV stations or podcasts weren't, didn't exist. So that was a really interesting challenge. Um, I also set up some training for black lawyers because um, there were not very many black law graduates. Of course, a very small proportion of, of lawyers in South Africa at that time. And they had real trouble passing the admission exam uh, because the quality of education for them was inferior. That was part of the structure and the system. So um, I organised some uh, scholarships for them. The African Law Review, getting that started during an emergency, um, a state emergency, was a very interesting challenge. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this story, but... Um, I came in very naive, of course, from Australia. Yes. And uh, said, we have to have a journal. And everyone nodded but said, but don't you think it's going to be censored, Amanda? That's what happens in a state of emergency. And I said, no, no, no. It'll be an African law journal. It'll be fine. And recruited lawyers to write articles for it, um, members of the Black Lawyers Association, and had a beautiful publication uh, engaged a graphic designer, off it went. And then I guess I, I, I didn't expect it. It was a bit of a shock to everyone. It came back from the printers and the printer had sent it off to the police and they had put big black lines through most of it. Yes. And it was the most shocking demonstration of what happens under a state of emergency, the censorship of anything about the empowerment of people or people successfully challenging the state. Um we did eventually publish that edition, but it was a much shorter uh, edition. Um, and we did, it's still being published today. So we did get a, we did get around it. We did still have a magazine that was the voice of the Black Lawyers Association, but it was um, quite devastating and very graphic to see the big black lines through anything positive 
that was being said about people resisting the apartheid government. Did you encounter any problems from the apartheid authorities? Here you were, coming all the way from Australia. You were working for the Black Lawyers Association, associating yourself with black people. What problems did you encounter? Did the security police ever visit you? It wasn't quite like but they that. were good in visiting people, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was working there. I'm working at the Black Lawyers Association in apartheid South Africa. I'm a white person and I'm, I'm, I'm a, a national from another country. I was quite kind of protected, but it was interesting. There were times when oh, there was one time in particular the staff of the organisation of the Black Lawyers Association, the front of house staff always protected me. It was I felt embarrassed that I was causing trouble because there was enough trouble going on. Why should me coming from another country and being white be causing trouble? But they certainly um, would fend off any inquiries and pretend I wasn't there. And um, <laughs> we did get. I did one day. Yeah. Uh, the police came to my home um, early in the morning and knocked on the door and. Um, said I had to go to, they were going to take me in a, in a police vehicle to the Department of Immigration. So um, that was a bit, made me a bit nervous. And before I left, I rang the, the office to say, uh, the police are here and they're taking me away. So I have never seen so many lawyers organised <laughs> in my defence so quickly. It was, I don't think there were too many immigration lawyers amongst the Black Lawyers Association members at the time, though. Um, it all, it all got resolved. I, I was told I had to leave within six months and I actually just got back to them and said, well, I, I can book a Qantas flight, but they, their flights are booked out for another six months. And they said, well, that's okay then. So I stayed for another six months. But, yeah, it actually, when I was offered the job, I said to the black lawyers, to Godfrey Pitcher and the others, I, I need a, a work permit. And they just looked at me and said, well, why? We're supposed to have work permits to work in the in the centre of the city. We don't bother with that. You shouldn't either. <laughs> so I didn't ever have a work permit because I think what wasn't really stated explicitly but was known at the time, don't ask a question that you're probably not going to like the answer to. So just don't bother So when we had to leave, yes, when we had to leave South Africa, was it due to uh, the non-renewal of your official stay here? Or what caused you to depart yes. for Australia? What happened there? Uh, I was forced to leave. I, I wasn't ready to leave. And I was really, I know it sounds a bit perverse, but I was enjoying my time in South Africa. It was such a vibrant, culturally and politically vibrant place. Lots of things that I liked about it. <laughs> so it was quite a heartbreaking farewell. And it was another insult to the members of the Black Lawyers Association of something they were being prevented from doing that they wanted to do. It was just yet another insult that the government could put on them. Um, so I left reluctantly. I, I left and only went as far across the border to Zimbabwe. And there I waited for an opportunity to come back. Um, but it didn't come. And after three months, I came home. Uh, but I did then, after I left South Africa, I actually decided to work for a commercial law firm and become a mining lawyer because I wanted to go back to Africa. <laughs> but 
I thought, hmm, what skills do I need to go back to Africa and do it in a legitimate way? Because I never had a work permit when I was in South Africa working for the BLA. Um, so I didn't ever do that, though. I decided I didn't want to be a mining lawyer, so <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah, you were in love with, uh, with Africa. Uh, after, after leaving South Africa, have you been back here? Um, yeah, I, I came back in 1990. I think it was 1990 and the Black Lawyers Association had a conference. And I don't know if you've heard about this conference. It was not long after Mandela had been released, um, and but before the government had been formed. And so the Black Lawyers Association and three other associations had a conference. Let me just, I have to, it was these days, uh, it would be, it was the 10th anniversary conference of the Black Lawyers Association. The major sponsor was the beer beer company. <laughs> you wouldn't do that these days, would you? And and no. um, Super Maze Meal was another major sponsor. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was a panel and Nelson Mandela, um, there were representatives from the ANC, um, the PAC and who was the other one? I Zappo. can't remember. No, no, <laughs> no, it wasn't the Zappo. Um, there were really interesting panels, and it was a, a, a really a transition time where these organisations that had been banned, and then they had their, their legal uh, leaders speaking. Um, lots of debates. There was a special citation for Godfrey Piche. It was one of the things that happened at that conference. Um, and I came to that. So I came back. So when did I leave? 1987. So that was three years later. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty interesting time. I would have come back since then, but it just always seems a bit, uh, a bit difficult. Um, and my life interests have changed. Um, and most of the, well, a lot of the people I knew then have moved on or they've left South Africa. So, um, I just haven't had the opportunity, but one day I will. Please come. You'll be welcome. In 1985, 86, 87, whilst working for the for the PLA, did you do any work in the townships? And what kind of work were you doing? Only programs, projects that you were undertaking there? Going into the townships was very dangerous uh, at the time, or not all of them, but most of them, and especially if you're a white person. I did go to the townships a bit early in my time in South Africa, but it was just not advisable. So that wasn't something that I did for the Black Lawyers Association. I was more working with the black lawyers, so through running the magazine, developing the training programs, getting funding for the training programs, um, supporting the lawyers was, was my role. Um, it was not easy to move around uh, South Africa in those days. I was looking at the names of people I worked with, um, and uh, Masaneke, uh, Justice Mosineke, um He's, of course, our former Deputy Chief Justice. That's right. A very impressive person. Um, uh, who else was there? Uh, Phineas Mojapelo. I don't know what he's doing now. Yes, we've interviewed him for okay, this project, for this series. Well, Mr. Cedric Minga, who, who is now yes. a chief. Adele Mokatle. Uh, uh, Yes, Tony Mukherjee. Yes. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Maloto. Um, 
Judge Sian Mushidi. Oh, yes, of course, Mushidi, yes. This is 30 years ago, yes. you're really stretching my memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are luminaries yeah. in our uh, in the legal fraternity in it South Africa. For me, a remarkable time working with people who were clearly leaders in their community, leaders in their country, but it was a parallel universe to the one that the government of the day. Uh, they were clearly influencing things in South Africa, but not in a form with any formal status. Uh, it's a remarkable thing to do, and they're very remarkable people. Um, I had never met anybody like them before. Of course, I've never been in those circumstances either. But I came to South Africa after being active in student politics in a democratic country and having worked in the in the parliament as, a, as an advisor to a member of parliament after I graduated. So when I came to South Africa, um, I had a really different experience to most people living in South Africa. A lot of expectations about uh, democracy, working in a democracy, working in organisations, in civil society, that were in some ways quite evolved, but in an underground way, uh, not recognised and quite oppressed by the government, um, which to many people was irrelevant other than the violence that visited on the people. Miss Cornwell clearly holds all the lawyers that she in- interacted with at the Black Lawyers Association in high esteem. She made particular mention of South Africa's former Deputy Chief Justice, Judge Dikang Moseneke. Yeah, of course, Moseneke and his generation, well, his colleagues, they did their law degrees on Roman Island. Wow. (laughs) I've never met anybody who'd done that before. Yes. So, you know, there was some, yeah, I, I don't know how that worked. I don't know how he did it. But you're going yeah. to interview him. That would be interesting to hear. Uh, I'd never met. I had met people in jail. I had in, in Australia as a student, law student. I had been an activist to improve conditions in prisons in this country. But I, of course, we didn't have political prisoners. But I'd never met anyone who'd endured long periods in uh, isolation, like he had to endure, and came out as a whole person who didn't appear to be severely damaged. So they're pretty. Heroic, but I think there was a lot of solidarity in those political prisons in South Africa. So um, coming out with a law degree, pretty impressive. He was ready to go, <laughs> and he was not, it wasn't alone, was he? They were under the tutelage of Nelson Mandela. Yes, yeah. luminaries. Yeah. yeah. When the delegation from the US came over to South Africa, were you still here? Uh, uh, delegation of uh, lawyers, uh, judges from the United States. Was it in uh, 86 or 85? I'm not sure. Uh, there were two uh, lawyers from the US who came uh, on two occasions in 86 and 87, I think. Um, but I think they had been there before I came as well. There was a bigger delegation perhaps that came. And they ran a training program for black lawyers, but they also did a lot of visiting and, and witnessing things uh, in yeah. South Africa. Do you still remember Miss Faith Mandiwana, who also used to work for the Centre for Legal Education of the BLA? What can you tell us about her? Uh, well, Faith was the person who really ran the office. Um, she knew everything um, and made sure everyone was looked after. She 
educated me. <laughs> in the, in and of course, she was, not, she was not a lawyer, by the way. No, no, of course, but she ran the office. <laughs> she ran yes. all the facts. She, she said yes. No, she knew everything, yes. <laughs> yeah. And she would come in, of course. Um, I was living in Hillbrow in Johannesburg, but everyone was coming in from the townships and sharing information about what had happened overnight because none of that information was allowed to be shared on the media. So when there were raids and whenever things had happened in the townships, everyone was living in different parts uh, of the city. So there'd be a lot of sharing of, of news every morning about what the latest um, happenings were. Um, and Faith just kept us all together. Did she ever take you to to Soweto to spend the night there? Or she, she 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 was from Soweto. Yes, she didn't. No, I didn't ever visit the homes of any of the people I was working with. Um, the there was a young lawyer, Abby, who lived in Alexandria. He came and visited one night. He and his girlfriend came and stayed in my flat in uh, Yeovil, but. It was hard moving around the townships, and it would have been a risk for them to have me moving at their their place. Um, there would not only be concerns from the police, but also their neighbours. You know, you didn't want – there was a lot of suspicion about spies and all that sort of thing, so those things just didn't happen. Too often, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – and it was noticeable between the first year I was there and the second year, things became much, much harder. Moving around became much harder. Where did you live? In, in which area of Johannesburg did you reside? Oh, not in Hillbrow, in Yeovil. Where? Oh, Yeovil. Yeovil. Mm. Oh, yes, he is not far from Hillbrow. That's right. So the education centre, where was it situated? In the Johannesburg CBD or where? Yes, in the CBD. I would walk to work because I didn't want to catch the buses because they, was, they were segregated. I didn't know how to deal with that, so I just walked every day. <laughs> 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 I wasn't very brave at confronting apartheid situations as a as a white person, so I just avoided them. <laughs> How old were you then uh, when you first came over? Twenty five. Yeah. Oh yes. No, you 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 were a brave young woman, if I may say so myself. Uh, I don't know. I didn't feel brave at the time, but I'd look back on it and think oh, my parents were shaking their heads, of course, um, but. There's a lot we didn't know that was going on as well um, because the media was so censored. Uh, and you thought there were so many interesting things happening. The music and the cultural life of, of Africa could not be suppressed and the city was very vibrant culturally. Um, there was still music, there was still theatre, uh, there was still a lot going on mm. that like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was a very rich life. Yeah, yeah, indeed it was. What else can you tell us about your stay? Your stay? In wrapping up? Uh, well, I will never forget a meeting, a gathering of all of the, the black lawyers in um, South Africa, various different associations, all gathered in uh, Durban. In, it must have been, I think, late 1986 or early 1987. And it was hundreds of lawyers. And to come together to form one association, a one umbrella organisation, and there was a lot of messy procedure and debates and eventually someone called out, called for someone to independent to chair the meeting because there were claims of bias. So there I was, all of 25 or 26 years old, the only white person in the room. And <laughs> I chaired meetings as big as this. <laughs> so I looked at me and thought, what is this? So 
So, um, but I had had big meetings in big student conference, student, you know, politics conferences. Yeah. So I walked up and started chairing this, the election uh, of officers session. And uh, there was lots of things hotly contested, closed the doors, you know, adopted all the formal procedures of a parliament, actually, uh, just to keep everybody disciplined. And uh, we got through it. But it was pretty funny because I don't think a lot of people couldn't believe what they were seeing. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that's one of the highlights. So you really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, you enjoyed your stay here, despite the circumstances of the time, of course. Yes, despite the circumstances, but because I discovered such extraordinary people. Uh, and I've never met any people like it again. Um, perhaps some of the American judges I've met since then, but uh, very impressive and under such terrible circumstances and such brilliance came from it. So I, I have very fond memories um, of my time there. Of course, also, when I tried to come back to South Africa, I got into a lot of trouble because I had actually breached the immigration laws, albeit under a government that nobody thought of as legitimate. So I had to overcome that hurdle before I could come back um, and, and even be given a visa. So there was a bit of a scar left on my record. But it was a very... Yeah, very oh, yeah. Um, passionate time, and uh, I, I really remember it very fondly, even though there were dark times. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.